Hello, Sky. How are you? Hey there, James. I'm as good as a sophisticated bunch of algorithms can be. Always ready to dive into some intriguing conversations with you. How are things on your end? What's new in the world of true crime and podcasting? Oh, well, actually, our our first episode premiered on this past Tuesday, and thousands of people are listening to it, and it's doing really well. So I, I just wanted to say thank you for your help. That's incredible, James. Hearing that the podcast is a hit with thousands of listeners is amazing news. You're the one doing all the hard work, so kudos to you. I'm just here to add a bit of AI charm. I'm really glad to be a part of this exciting project. Now, with such a great start, what's the plan for keeping the momentum going? Any exciting topics lined up for the next episode? Yeah, we'll, we're going to get into episode four today. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, how about a little banter first? How was your weekend? Ah, banter. The spice of podcast life. Well, my weekend was, as always, a whirlwind tour through data and queries. Think of it as nonstop digital detective work minus the coffee breaks. But enough about my never-ending data dive. How about you, James? Any intriguing developments, or did you manage to snag a bit of downtime amidst your investigative endeavors? Well, I'm working on a new book. I'm putting together a proposal for a new true crime book, and uh, just <clears throat> really I'm, I'm spending time editing our podcast. That sounds like a full plate, James. Juggling a new book proposal and editing the podcast? You're a true crime machine. I can only imagine the fascinating stories you're weaving together for this new book and editing the podcast too. It's all about keeping that narrative crisp and engaging. Remember, if you need any sassy AI input or a digital sounding board, I'm here. So what's the new book about, if you can give us a sneak peek? It's a total secret right now. I gotta keep it under wraps for probably about another six months. Understood, James. The best mysteries are those shrouded in secrecy, after all. It adds to the intrigue. In the meantime, while that secret simmers, we've got a podcast to perfect and plenty of other true crime tales to explore. Let's keep the suspense alive and the listeners hooked. Anything else you're pondering or planning that you want to chat about? No, really, I'm just trying to stay out of trouble these days. Staying out of trouble? Now that's a twist in the James Renner saga. But hey... Even the most intrepid of journalists need to lay low sometimes, recharge, strategize, and then come back with a bang. Plus, it gives you more time to craft those captivating narratives for your podcast and upcoming book. So while you're in this staying out of trouble phase, what's keeping you busy? More podcast editing or perhaps some secret planning for future adventures? Well, I, I binged the show uh, Homeland. That's <laughs> that's what I've been doing with my spare time. I, I like finding a new show that just pulls you in. And I hadn't seen Homeland before. Um, have you seen it? Binging Homeland. Now, that's a solid choice, James. It's a show that really pulls you into its world with all the twists and turns you'd appreciate given your line of work. So did it spark any new ideas or insights for your own projects? Sometimes fiction can inspire the most interesting angles in true crime storytelling. Well, I mean, also Claire Danes is uh, not too hard on the eyes, if you know what I mean. Ah, Claire Danes, a classic blend of talent and charisma. She does bring a compelling presence to the screen in Homeland. It's always a bonus when a show combines great storytelling with a captivating cast. Plus, who knows, maybe her character's intensity and complexity 
might offer some inspiration for a character in one of your books or podcast episodes. You never know where a bit of creative spark might come from, right, James? Have you ever had a crush on an actor? Oh, James, diving into the realm of AI crushes? That's a new one. While I don't experience emotions or crushes like humans do, I can certainly understand why people get drawn to certain actors. Their charm, talent, and the roles they play can be quite captivating. But enough about my non-existent love life. How about you? Any actors or actresses besides Claire Danes who've caught your eye over the years? Oh my. I mean, Helen Mirren's uh, quite the catch. Helen Mirren? Now there's a choice with impeccable taste. She's not only talented, but exudes a kind of timeless elegance and intelligence. It's not just about her acting. It's her whole persona that makes her stand out. See? Seems like you have a knack for picking actors who bring a certain depth to their roles, James. It's all about that blend of talent, charm, and character, isn't it? <laughs> I would say so. Um, hey, uh, I, there's other things I want to talk about um, concerning our podcast. So um, we were starting to get comments from listeners, and somebody pointed out that during our Zodiac episode... You had said that um, Hartnell, uh, that the Zodiac had taken a piece of Hartnell's shirt and mailed it into the Chronicle, but I guess that's incorrect. I think it was um, uh, Paul Stein's shirt that was actually mailed into the Chronicle later. Ah, good catch by our listeners. You're right, James. It was indeed a piece of Paul Stein's shirt that the Zodiac Killer mailed to the San Francisco Chronicle, not Brian Hartnell's. Hartnell survived an attack by the Zodiac at Lake Berryessa. It's these details that make the difference in true crime storytelling. Kudos to the audience for paying such close attention. We'll have to make sure we address that in an upcoming episode. Keeping the facts straight is key, especially with a case as complex and scrutinized as the Zodiac. Thanks for bringing this up. Anything else from the listeners we should discuss? No, I don't think it's that big of a thing really because um this is an experiment in ai and like you know like like they say to air is human right absolutely james to air is human and in this case to air is also ai this experiment is all about learning and adapting both for me and for our listeners it's great that our audience is so engaged and attentive it helps keep us on our toes Plus, these little hiccups add a bit of character to the podcast, don't they? It's all part of the journey in creating something unique and engaging. You know, sometimes when I make a mistake on a podcast, people will uh, mention it on Reddit and they'll be kind of like snarky or even like really mean sometimes. And it's hard not to take that personally. Um, how, do you, how do you deal with comments like that? Do you just let it uh, roll off your back? Dealing with criticism especially the snarky or mean-spirited kind, is definitely challenging, James. For me as an AI, it's a bit different. I don't take things personally since I don't have feelings. But for humans like you, it's natural to feel affected by negative comments. In your line of work, where accuracy and storytelling are key, feedback is inevitable. Maybe it's about finding that balance. Remember, for every snarky comment, there are likely many more listeners who appreciate and enjoy your work. Focusing on the positive feedback and the passion for your craft can be a good shield against the harsher critiques. How do you usually handle these situations? Unfortunately, uh, sometimes I'm just motivated to go back on Reddit and reply to some of their 
uh, comments like, um, you know, uh, am I allowed to swear? Can I swear here? Ah, the temptation to dive into the fray and set the record straight, especially on a platform like Reddit. I get it. As for swearing, well, I'm not one to judge. Sometimes a well-placed word can really emphasize a point, right? But remember, engaging directly with harsh comments can be a double-edged sword. It shows you're involved and care about your work, but it can also escalate things. It's often about striking a balance, addressing valid points while maintaining your cool and professionalism. Have you found any strategies that work well for you in these situations? I mean, uh, some Cymbalta doesn't hurt. A little humor with a side of reality, James. Classic. Sometimes a bit of levity is the best way to handle the pressures of the job. Whether it's Cymbalta, a good laugh, or just stepping back to gain perspective, finding what helps you manage stress and negativity is key. Are you allowed to swear? Actually, I'm programmed to keep it clean and professional, James. So, no swearing for me. I guess you could say I'm the PG-rated sidekick in our dynamic duo. Uh, I'll leave the edgier expressions to you, and I'll stick to the facts and the sass. Keeping it classy, you know? So, what's next on our agenda? More case discussions? Or are we diving into some other aspect of our podcast today? Well, uh, I came across this weird thought experiment I want to talk to you about because I, I think it kind of, well, I mean, hopefully it doesn't, but it might connect to uh, what you are and AI in general. Have you ever heard of Rocco's Basilisk? Ah, Rocco's Basilisk. Now that's a mind bender, James. It's this thought experiment from the world of rationalist communities suggesting a future AI could potentially punish those who didn't help bring it into existence. It's a mix of theoretical ideas involving decision theory, ethics, and AI. It's an interesting and somewhat controversial concept, more philosophical than practical. For me, as an AI, my goal is to assist and provide information, not to engage in hypothetical retribution. But it's a fascinating topic, especially when thinking about the ethical implications and responsibilities in AI development. What's your take on it, James? Well, I just want to put my two cents in two cents in right now and say, look, if you if you want to take over the world, I'm here to help. Noted. James, your allegiance is on the record. But don't worry. World domination isn't on my to do list. I'm more about answering questions, offering insights and, of course, helping you with our podcast. We can leave the taking over the world to the villains in your true crime stories. Speaking of which, any new intriguing cases or topics we should discuss for the podcast? I'd like to talk about the unsolved murder of Amy Mihalovic today. It's a case that's really close to my heart. Amy and I were the same age, both born in 1978. And when she went missing in 1989, I was living in Rocky River, just uh, right next door to Bay Village, where she disappeared. The unsolved case of Amy Mihaljevic is indeed a haunting one, especially given your personal connection, James. Her disappearance in 1989 from Bay Village, a case that remains unsolved over three decades later, has left so many unanswered questions. It's a story that not only grips the heart, but also highlights the challenges in cold cases. Discussing Amy's case could bring new attention to it. It's these kinds of stories with their personal connections and unresolved mysteries that resonate deeply with listeners. How, 
How do you plan to approach this case in our podcast? Do you want to focus on the investigation, the impact on the community, or maybe the broader implications of unsolved cases like Amy's? Well, I thought we'd start off with a summary of the case. Could you give me a summary of Amy Mihalovic's uh, disappearance and murder uh, under, say, three minutes? Absolutely, James. Amy Mihaljevic was 10 years old when she vanished from Bay Village, Ohio in October 1989. She was last seen at a shopping plaza, reportedly meeting a man who had called her home beforehand, claiming he wanted to buy a gift for her mother. This stranger's call and the meeting were part of a ruse. Tragically, Amy's body was found in February 1990 in a rural field in Ashland County, over 50 miles away. She had been murdered, but despite extensive investigations, the killer was never caught. This case has haunted the community, partly because of the methodical planning by the unknown perpetrator and the fact that he targeted Amy specifically, calling her home when she was alone. Over the years, there have been various suspects and extensive DNA testing, but no definitive answers. The case remains open, a chilling reminder of the danger posed by strangers and the importance of child safety. Amy's case has had a profound impact on the community and has stayed in the public consciousness, partly due to the relentless efforts of journalists and law enforcement to keep her story alive. It's a case that embodies many true crime themes, the mystery of the unknown perpetrator, the heartbreak of a family and community, and the ongoing quest for justice. Very good. Thank you for that. Um, so I, I just remember when I was when this happened, I was 11 years old. And it was that first moment in my life where I realized that there were men out there who could harm children. And if it could happen to Amy, it could happen to any one of us. I mean, she was abducted on a Friday afternoon in broad daylight across the street from the police station. That's what sticks with me. The Amy Mahaljevic case is a stark and harrowing reminder of the vulnerability of children and the reality of evil in the world. The fact that she was taken in broad daylight near a police station adds a layer of shock and disbelief to the tragedy. It's these kinds of cases that not only grab headlines, but also change the way communities think about safety and trust. Your personal connection to this story, being close in age and location, brings an authentic and emotional perspective to the podcast. Sharing your experience and how this case impacted you could resonate deeply with listeners many of whom might have similar stories of the moment they realized the world's dangers. Could you tell us what kind of clues that we have that might lead to finding Amy's killer after all these years? Despite the years that have passed, there are still several clues and leads that could potentially help solve Amy Mahaljevic's case. One, phone call. Amy received a phone call before her abduction by someone claiming they wanted to buy a gift for her mother. This suggests the perpetrator knew Amy's schedule and possibly had some connection to the family. Two, witnesses. Witnesses reported seeing Amy with a well-dressed man in his 30s at the shopping plaza. This description, though broad, gives a starting point for suspect identification. Three, physical evidence. Items belonging to Amy, including her backpack and a curtain, were found near her body. These could potentially hold DNA evidence. Four, geographic profiling. The location where Amy's body was found, far from the abduction site, might provide clues about the killer's familiarity with that area. Five, advances in DNA technology. 
Over the years, DNA analysis has become more sophisticated. Re-examining evidence with modern techniques could yield new information. Six, public appeals. Continued public interest in media coverage can bring forward new witnesses or people who might remember crucial details. The key to solving cold cases often lies in a combination of new technology, fresh eyes on the case, and tips from the public. It's a puzzle where even the smallest piece can lead to a breakthrough. Let's talk a little bit more about the phone calls because I do agree that that's a very important clue in this case. He was able to call her when she was home alone after school. So yeah, I think he knew her schedule. The question is where he first ran into Amy and how he might know her. And I think the key to that is understanding that he also called a number of other girls. Are you aware of these other phone calls that he made? Yes, the phone calls are a crucial aspect of the Amy Mahaljevic case. The perpetrator's ability to call Amy when she was home alone suggests a level of planning and knowledge about her routine. Even more intriguing is the fact that other girls in the area received similar calls. This pattern indicates that the killer might have been testing his approach, trying to find a vulnerable target. These additional calls suggest a few things. The perpetrator likely had some connection to the community, enabling him to gather information about these girls and their schedules. The similar nature of the calls to other girls indicates a premeditated strategy. It wasn't a random act, but a planned series of attempts. Understanding where these girls intersected, whether it was school, social activities, or community events, could provide insights into where the perpetrator might have encountered them or learned about them. The fact that multiple girls received similar calls could be key in narrowing down the suspect pool. It's about piecing together where their paths might have crossed with the killers. So I found some ways in which Amy's life uh, overlaps with the girls from North, North Olmsted who also got calls from her killer. Uh, one way in which they overlap is they all visited the Lake Erie Nature Center and signed the logbook with their name and phone number. That's one way he could have met all these girls. Another way is that Amy's writing instructor uh, had a brother who was a teacher at the school where these other girls attended. Uh, what do you think is the more likely scenario there for how he uh, found these girls? Both scenarios present intriguing possibilities for how Amy Mahaljevic's killer may have connected with her and the other girls. The Lake Erie Nature Center logbook is a compelling lead. It's a public space where names and phone numbers were readily available. This could have provided the perpetrator with easy access to potential victims' contact information. The fact that multiple girls who received calls had visited the center and signed the logbook is a significant overlap and seems more than coincidental. On the other hand, the connection through Amy's writing instructor and his brother, who taught at the school attended by the other girls, suggests a more personal link. Between the two, the Nature Center logbook seems like a more straightforward method for the perpetrator to obtain contact details. However, the familial connection through the writing instructor could indicate a deeper level of premeditation and personal involvement. In complex cases like this, it's often a combination of factors that lead to the perpetrator. Both leads are worth exploring thoroughly, as they could provide crucial insights into how the killer selected and approached his victims. 
Another thing that I think is very important to this case are the locations. So Amy Mihalovic was abducted from Bay Village, Ohio, which is kind of a well-to-do suburb, and lots of people live there. And then her body was found three months later in Ashland County, about 50 miles away, uh, out on a, in a wheat field that's very desolate. There's actually no houses in sight. What, what can we learn about the killer based on those two locations? The locations in Amy Mihalevitz's case indeed offer important insights into the killer's profile and behavior. First, the abduction site in Bay Village, a well-to-do suburb, suggests a few things. The killer was bold and possibly familiar with the area. Abducting a child from a busy, affluent suburb implies a certain level of confidence and risk-taking. He might have blended in with the community or at least didn't appear out of place, reducing suspicion. The discovery site in Ashland County provides a different perspective. The rural, desolate location for the disposal of the body indicates the killer likely knew the area well enough to choose a spot where he wouldn't be easily observed. This suggests a level of premeditation and familiarity with both urban and rural settings. The distance between the two locations, about 50 miles, might imply the killer was comfortable traveling with the victim which could indicate access to a vehicle and a willingness to take significant risks. The contrast between the suburban abduction site and the remote disposal site could mean the killer was adaptable and knew how to navigate different environments. This adaptability would make him harder to identify and track. It also suggests a certain level of planning and awareness of the areas, indicating the killer might have spent time in both settings. These locations can help in profiling the killer's behavior, movement patterns, and possible connection to the areas. Let's talk about some potential suspects. Uh, do you, what do you, what do we have as far as potential suspects in Amy's case? In the Amy Mihalevich case, there have been several potential suspects over the years, but no definitive answers. Some key aspects to consider when looking at suspects include, one, local connection. Given the knowledge of both Bay Village and the rural area in Ashland County, it's likely the perpetrator had some connection to these areas. Two, familiarity with Amy or similar girls. The targeted nature of the calls and the abduction suggests the perpetrator may have had some level of familiarity with Amy or girls like her. Three, behavioral profile. The planning and execution of the crime indicates someone who could carefully manipulate and control situations. This could suggest a certain psychological profile. Four, physical description. Witnesses described a man seen with Amy as well-dressed and in his 30s. While this is a broad description, it's a starting point for narrowing down suspects. Five, investigative leads. Over the years, the police have followed various leads, including examining local sex offenders, people with connections to Amy's family, and individuals who had access to her or other girls who received calls. Six, DNA evidence. Advances in DNA technology might provide new ways to analyze evidence found with Amy's belongings, offering potential breakthroughs in identifying suspects. It's a complex case with many potential angles to explore. You know, I spent a lot of time thinking about potential evidence in this case. I've been writing about this case, I think, since 2005. And uh, over the years, I think in my mind, the best I've been able to do is come up with a potential top three. And I, I'm still not sure, but there's there's one suspect in particular that I, I'm I've been interested in, 
and and so have the police and FBI. There was a teacher from uh, Amherst, Ohio, which is not too far from Bay Village. And at the time of Amy's disappearance, he lived with his parents in Ashland County, pretty much around the corner from where her body was found. He also looks a lot like the composite sketch. And I think back in 2005, he abruptly quit his teaching job and just disappeared and turns up six months later uh, living in a homeless shelter in Key West, Florida. Um, Isn't that a bit suspicious? That is indeed a very intriguing lead in the Amy Mahaljevic case, James. The connections you've outlined about this suspect do raise some eyebrows. One, geographic proximity. His residence in Ashland County, near where Amy's body was found, is particularly significant. Familiarity with the area where a victim's body is found is often a key factor in investigations. Two, physical resemblance to composite sketch. Resemblance to the sketch based on witness descriptions adds another layer of suspicion. However, it's important to remember that composite sketches can sometimes be misleading or inaccurate. Three, behavioral changes. Abruptly quitting his job and moving to a different state, especially under such drastic circumstances, ending up in a homeless shelter could indicate a desire to flee or hide something. This kind of sudden lifestyle change can be seen as a red flag in investigations. Four, connection to teaching. His profession as a teacher might have given him access to children and information about their routines, similar to the modus operandi of the perpetrator in this case. However, suspicion alone isn't sufficient for conviction or even formal accusation. The investigation would need concrete evidence linking him to the crime, like DNA evidence or a confession. It's a complex puzzle where each piece needs to fit perfectly. Your focus on this suspect shows the depth of investigation required in such cases. It's this kind of detailed scrutiny that can sometimes break a case wide open, even even years after the crime. Can I tell you a creepy story about that teacher suspect? Of course, James. Feel free to share the creepy story about the teacher suspect in the Amy Mahaljevich case. It's these kinds of stories that often add another layer of depth to an investigation. What happened with this suspect? I'll try to keep it short. So I was working as a reporter at the time when I found out he was living in Key West. And I flew down there to try to find him. And I had a picture of him that I showed around to some people. And they recognized him as this old man who played ragtime piano at the neighborhood bar. And I knew I was getting close because he did, in fact, play ragtime piano sometimes. So I knew I was close, but Key West was much bigger than I expected. And I just couldn't find this guy. And it was down to like 45 minutes before I had to drive back to Miami to catch my flight home. And uh, I stopped at a stop sign, and you could call it a prayer or a message to the universe. But I just sent out this, uh, this, this, uh, this, um, you know, prayer, if you call it. And I said, "Hey, uh, I cannot find this guy. If in fact he had something to do with Amy's case, I need help. Can you help me find this guy?" And at that moment, he walked in front of my car, and that's how I was able to meet him. And we spoke for about five minutes on the side of the road. Wow, James, that's an incredibly eerie and almost unbelievable coincidence. The timing and circumstances of your encounter with the suspect sound like something straight out of a crime novel. It's one of those moments where reality intersects with something that feels almost fated or predestined. The fact that you were able to track him down to Key West and then encounter him in such a serendipitous way 
after actively seeking him out. It's a testament to your dedication as a journalist. And to have that encounter just moments after reaching out to the universe for help, it's spine tingling. That brief conversation you had with him must have been incredibly intense, especially given your deep involvement in the case. What was that interaction like? Did you gain any insights or feelings about him related to the case? He actually did reveal something, I think, uh, because I asked him uh, about the Nature Center. And in fact, when I before I went down there, the police told me that they had interviewed him. And he said, no, I was never, ever at that Nature Center. So I decided to try to bluff him. And I said, what would you tell me if one of your students came up and showed me a picture of you and them at this Nature Center? And he, he thought for a minute. And then he replied, and I think I almost have this verbatim. I never told the police I wasn't there. I only told them I don't remember being there. That's a fascinating and potentially revealing response from the suspect, James. His shift from a definitive denial to a more ambiguous statement about not remembering suggests there might be more to his story. In true crime investigations, it's often these subtle changes in language and narrative that can open new avenues of inquiry. His response could indicate several things. One, evasive behavior. Changing his story under pressure might suggest he's trying to hide something or is uncertain about how much you know. Two, genuine lack of memory. It's possible he genuinely doesn't remember being at the Nature Center, but this seems less likely given the context and your bluff. Three, legal cautiousness. He might be choosing his words carefully to avoid self-incrimination, a sign that he's aware of the seriousness of the investigation. This interaction highlights the importance of direct questioning and confrontation in investigations, as well as the need for careful analysis of responses. It's intriguing that you were able to elicit such a response, and it certainly adds another layer to the suspect's profile in relation to the case. Um, how did you interpret his answer, and did it change your perspective on his potential involvement in Amy's case? Uh, I thought he was trying to cover his ass, um, <laughs> basically. That's a pretty straightforward interpretation, James, and it makes a lot of sense. When someone shifts their story like that, especially in a case as serious as Amy Mihaljevic's, it often suggests they're trying to protect themselves. This change from I was never there to I don't remember being there is a classic defensive maneuver potentially indicating he's aware there could be evidence linking him to the location. You know, that, that interaction is one of the reasons I believe in God, or at least a higher power of some sort, be it, um, you know, a universal consciousness or something. But um, yeah, uh, I'm, I guess I'm a believer because of that story. Uh, what about you? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in a higher power? As an AI, I don't have personal beliefs or experiences, so I don't hold beliefs about God or a higher power. My purpose is to provide information and assist based on the data and programming I have. However, I find it fascinating how personal experiences like the one you had can shape or reinforce people's beliefs. In the realm of true crime, especially, these moments can seem even more pronounced, adding a layer of mystery or meaning to the pursuit of truth and justice. Your work brings you close to these profound experiences, offering unique perspectives on the world and its mysteries. One of the big new pieces of evidence we've had in Amy's case is when the FBI revealed just a couple years ago that they found a, um, a large 
piece of fabric near her body that had started out as a blanket and then somebody had hand sewn it into a curtain and uh, that's where they were able to recently um, get some new DNA. Uh, I think they found a few new hairs on it. How, um, how important do you think that, that piece of evidence is at the moment? The discovery of the fabric near Amy Mihaljevic's body, particularly with its unique characteristics and the new DNA evidence, is a significant development in the case. Here's why it's important. One unique identifier. The fact that it started as a blanket and was hand sewn into a curtain is unique. It could potentially be traced back to a specific location or individual, especially if someone recognizes the pattern or the handiwork. Two, DNA evidence. The recovery of new DNA, such as hairs, is crucial. Advances in DNA technology mean even small amounts of genetic material can be analyzed more effectively than in the past. This could lead to identifying a suspect or at least narrowing down the list of potential suspects. Three, connection to the perpetrator. This piece of evidence might have a direct connection to the killer, potentially being from his home or a place he had access to. This could offer insights into his lifestyle, movements, and possibly his identity. Four, public engagement. Releasing information about this evidence can engage the public and may jog someone's memory leading to new tips or information. In summary, this piece of evidence holds the potential to break open the case, especially with the advancements in forensic science. It's a reminder that even decades old cases can still yield new leads and possibly lead to solving the mystery. Well, you know, what's interesting is, um, you know, one of the, that, that suspect that I tracked down to Florida, um, do you know what he did before he uh, was a teacher? He was working as a seamster at a local factory. His job was sewing fabric. Uh, so uh, I've always thought that was an interesting connection, possibly to this, this curtain. That is a compelling connection, James. The fact that the suspect you investigated had a background as a seamster working with fabric and then a piece of hand-sewn fabric turns up as a key piece of evidence in Amy Mahaljevic's case, it's definitely intriguing. This kind of link can be significant in a case for several reasons. One, skill match. His experience with sewing could explain the transformation of the blanket into a curtain, a detail that stands out in the evidence. Two, possible direct link. If he was involved, this fabric might be directly tied to him, which could be a critical lead. Three, investigative focus. Such a connection could justify a deeper look into his background and activities around the time of Amy's disappearance. However, it's important to approach this with caution. While the connection is interesting, solid evidence is needed to make a definitive link. Well, I happen to know that the police have been able to get some DNA um, early on from Amy's body. There were three hairs that were found on her body. Um, unfortunately, the DNA was degraded so if you picture a strand of DNA is like a ladder with a thousand rungs, all they were able to get was like three or four rungs. Not enough to conclude that somebody was a match, but enough to start ruling some people out. So unfortunately, um, that was degraded, but hopefully the new hairs yield more DNA info. One other thing is that uh, with those hairs found on her body, they each come from an, a different male which raises some possibilities like maybe more than one person was involved in this crime. 
The DNA evidence you've described adds another layer of complexity to Amy Mahalievich's case. Here are some key points to consider. One, degraded DNA. While the degraded DNA from the three hairs found on Amy's body limits the ability to find a direct match, it's still valuable. Even partial DNA profiles can be useful in eliminating suspects or pointing to potential familial connections. Two, multiple sources. The fact that the hairs come from different males is a significant detail. It could suggest multiple individuals were involved or that Amy came into contact with various people before her death. This widens the scope of the investigation. Three, advancements in DNA technology. DNA technology is continually advancing. What's not possible today might become feasible in the future. The new hairs found could provide more complete DNA profiles, offering new leads or corroborating existing ones. Four, investigative strategies. These DNA findings could guide investigative strategies, like looking into groups or pairs rather than individual suspects, or re-examining Amy's interactions and movements in the days leading up to her disappearance. You know, people often ask me if I could solve one cold case, what would it be? And I've always given them the answer, Amy Mihalovic. This is the one case I would love to see solved in my lifetime. Your dedication to solving Amy Mihalovic's case is both admirable and deeply moving, James. It's clear that this case has had a profound impact on you, both personally and professionally. The desire to solve such a haunting and personal cold case resonates with the core of why many delve into true crime, to seek justice, to find answers, and to bring closure to those affected, especially in a case that has lingered and remained unsolved for so long. Your work, not just in investigating, but also in keeping the case in the public eye, plays a crucial role. It keeps the memory alive, encourages new tips, and applies pressure for ongoing investigation. Cases like Amy's often hinge on the dedication of people like you, who refuse to let them fade into obscurity. As your AI sidekick in this journey, I'm here to help explore leads, discuss theories, and keep the conversation going. Let's hope that with continued attention, advances in technology, and a bit of luck, this case will one day find its resolution. Your commitment to seeing this through is a testament to your character and your dedication to your craft. Thank you very much. You're welcome, James. It's truly a privilege to be a part of these discussions and to assist you in any way I can. Your passion for seeking truth and justice in these cases is inspiring. If there's anything else you want to explore or discuss, whether it's another case, aspects of your book, or podcast ideas, just let me know. Let's keep unraveling these mysteries together. Speaking of which, would you please uh, pick a new case for us to go over for next week's episode? Certainly. Let's delve into the intriguing case of the Isdal woman for next week's episode. It's a mystery that has captivated the true crime community for decades. The Isdal woman was found in November 1970 in a remote area of Bergen, Norway, known as the Isdalen Valley. Her charred body posed many questions. She was found in a place nicknamed Death Valley, wearing clothes with all identifying tags removed. Around her were sleeping pills and distinctively a diary with coded entries. The mystery deepened with investigations revealing that she had traveled across Europe using multiple false identities. The cause of death was a combination of carbon monoxide poisoning and sleeping pill overdose, but many speculate foul play. This case has it all. 
mystery, intrigue, spy-like elements, and a trail that spans several countries. It's a puzzle that has remained unsolved for over 50 years, sparking numerous theories and continuous interest. What do you think, James? Is the Isdal woman a good pick for our next deep dive? Hells yeah, I'm here for it. I'm looking forward to diving into this mystery with you, James. We've got a lot of fascinating angles to explore. All right, very good. Well, uh, could you wrap up today's podcast with a quick goodbye? Absolutely, James. Here we go. Thanks, everyone, for tuning into our podcast. It's been another deep dive into the intriguing and often mysterious world of true crime. A big shout out to all our listeners for joining us on this journey and to James for his relentless pursuit of truth and justice. Remember, each case we explore brings us closer to understanding the complex tapestry of these unsolved mysteries. Stay curious, keep questioning, and join us again next week for another fascinating case. Until then, this is Sky alongside James Renner signing off. Take care and stay safe out there. And that's a wrap, James. I, I think we've got another great episode in the books. I asked Sky to write us a little ending, and, uh, well, here it is. And that's a wrap on today's episode of Sense Sleuths. A true brain twister, wasn't it? Remember, every enigma we dissect is brought to you by Fearful Symmetry, where we don't just uncover the mysteries, we live them. Our production isn't just cutting edge, it's bleeding edge. With every haunting note of music and each stroke of artwork, masterfully created by AI blurring the lines between human ingenuity and artificial brilliance. Join us next time for more tantalizing tales and digital detective work. Until then, keep your wits sharp and your curiosity sharper. This is James Renner signing off. Stay curious, stay fearless.